welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is so much science that we can barely stand it. How much science? Well, I'm going to tell you how much science. My name is Chris, and today I am going to be talking about exploding stars, no less than supernovas, supernovae, supernovas. Yeah, we can't agree on this one. Um, talking about exploding stars. How big are these explosions, and are they going to blow us up? They're Can, yep. Considering I'm a supernova, supernovus, I'm very much looking forward to this story, Chris. Yeah, well, one of the things I'm interested in is some nearish stars that may be about to go kaboom. Um, and, and, how, and how near they will have to be how for near it to affect be, this. Are we in danger? Um, I'm going to tell you right out now, don't panic just yet. Don't, don't you know, go and... I don't know, get into a bunker or something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, get out from under your desk. That's right. There are other things to be worried about, such as Stu. <laughs> no, not <laughs> Stu. <laughs> no. He's got a story about things to worry about. What is it? Well, I don't know if it's something to worry about, but it is um, an update on a story that's sort of set the pace of a branch of psychology for a very long time, since the 90s. This is the marshmallow test, which people might have heard of. Um, it's about testing young children about their ability to delay gratification and how much that affects them uh, in later life, how successful they are in their in their later life. So does the test involve feeding them marshmallows or does it involve seeing who are the really soft kids who are like marshmallows <laughs> and like sort of squishy? And No, it invo- the actual test involves um, saying, here's a marshmallow and if you wait and don't eat it, I'll give you another marshmallow, right. which sounds kind of creepy out of context, but that's what the test... Is really uh, is is really doing? You're saying, will will which kids will eat the marshmallow, and which kids will will hold off and wait for the second one so they get two marshmallows? But there could be something else going on there. Is that what you're saying? Well, there's someone's rerun the whole thing. So the original test went for decades, basically, and was published in the 90s. Some people didn't like the way the test was conducted, so they did their own. But obviously, that's taken a couple of decades to get it together, and they've just published that recently. So be looking at what they found. Excellent. Sounds very intriguing and relevant to our lives. Claire. Well, for listeners in New South Wales, this is um, this is very relevant. Uh, Kosciuszko National Park, there's just been a very controversial bill passed around um, brumbies or wild horses protecting them in Kosciuszko National Park. So I'm going to take a look at that bill and what it means for uh, the other, every other species uh, in that national park and what the scientists and the experts are saying about it. Excellent. Well, we are, we're going to find out exactly what's going to happen with those wild horses. We'll be riding on the horses uh, very shortly. <laughs> on with the show. So recently, the ABC's uh, Stargazing Live program, we're not doing a cross-promotion here, I'm just going to mention it though, Um, they did this thing where citizen scientists around the country got to participate in stargazing. Yes. Yes. And one of the things they did was they helped discover a supernova. Wow. 
Yeah, oh, I saw this. There was a bit of there was a bit of a flurry of excitement about this. This was a flurry of excitement. It was a flash of light that someone spotted from a galaxy 1.1 billion light years away. And is it unusual to be able to find supernova? Is there, it is it a rare event? Well, there are a lot of them going on in the universe, but they're important to see. I mean, but what's got really got me thinking because, like, as you know, a supernova is an exploding star. Um, now, this was one was. 1.1 billion light years away, which means it's a very big explosion. So it really did get me wondering what would happen if one went off near us. And uh, how near? I love Chris's thought experiment. Yeah, and yeah, this is likely to happen. <laughs> you know. Okay, so um, so let's look at let's talk about what supernovae, supernova, supernovas, supernovae, supernova. I don't know. Super, I'd say supernovas, but probably I would in say old supernovas. Fashion, yeah, in okay. old-fashioned terminology, it was probably supernovae. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. Um, so the couple of different kinds of these things. Uh, the one that you might be most familiar with is you get like a really big, really big massive star, uh, ranges from about eight times the mass of the sun to about 50 times the mass of the sun, and it just collapses under its own gravity. Uh, and the outer layers are blown off in a tremendous explosion, and the remnant of the core becomes either a neutron star or a black hole. You've heard of this kind of thing going on? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. This is called actually called a Type 2 supernova. So creative with the name. I know. All I want to know is what the Type 1 is. Yeah, well, that's well, one thing by the ABC Stargazers was actually a Type 1. In fact, a Type 1A. And this is a fairly common type. This is where you have like a binary system with a white dwarf and some other star. And the white dwarf pulls mass off its companion star and eventually builds up to enough that it explodes. Sort of sounds like a Type A, Type 1 personality, doesn't it? Like... <laughs> In star just form. feeding off the just other feeding star, feeding off the other star until it explodes, making itself bigger. <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Type one A's are really interesting, partly because they're it's it's a fairly it's a fairly um simple process. Like it happens, it's a, well, it's a common process, well understood process, and they're quite easily identifiable. These ones, and they're all pretty much the same. So they use them as kind of what they call standard candles, in that. Uh, if you see a Type 1A supernova going off in a distant galaxy, you can go, ah, I know what type that is in from its brightness. You can figure out how far away the galaxy is just right. by going, ah, because I know how bright that should be because these things always go off in the same way. And, yeah, they're, they're quite good for calculating um, distances, cosmological distances. Um, but, yes, and they can be seen from a very long way away because they're really, really big explosions. So a supernova can outshine all the other stars in a galaxy. In fact, the brightest one ever seen, it was only in 2016 this was published, it was 50 times brighter than our own Milky Way galaxy. So we are talking very big explosions. So if you're standing next to one when it happens, not, you're not going to end up very well. You can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Fortunately. Make sure you're wearing your, um, your darkened glasses. That's, that's right. Fortunately, you know, we know the conditions that generally happen to cause a supernova and obviously our sun it doesn't satisfy those conditions. It's too so small. It's too small. Yeah, so where is, where is the nearest star that would be capable of going supernova? Well, this is what we're trying to figure out. Um, the, there have been ones certainly in our galaxy, uh, in history, and some of them relatively close by. There's been some famous ones that you probably don't remember because they were a long time ago. Um, probably before we were born. Yeah. What, like, the, like millions of years? The or? brightest one. The, well, 
recorded in history, as in for the millions yeah. of years. Yeah. Um, the brightest one recorded was in the year 1006, 1006, sorry, yeah, not 1006, 1006. Um, and that was believed to be a type 1A supernova. It was about 16 times brighter than the planet Venus. It could be seen in the daytime. There are records of it from throughout the Northern Hemisphere. And that was about 7,200 light years away. So still a fair distance within our galaxy, but still, and you know, in the local part of our galaxy, but still 7,200 light years away is a bit of a distance. So it took that long for the light to reach us. Would, would, is it possible that any material from that would ever reach Earth? Not for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Um, other ones, I don't really have the distances written down here, but there was a famous one in 1054 that was recorded by Chinese astronomers. Uh, it formed the Crab Nebula. I was going to say, the Crab I was going to say, say it, crab, say it, say crab it. nebula. There you go. That was a type 2 supernova. Great. Yes, and that's in the constellation Taurus, for those who wanted to look it up. Uh, the most recently observed one was in 1604. It was named Kepler's star because the astronomer Johannes Kepler wrote a book about it. Um, there have been a couple of other ones since then in about 1680 and 1868, but those were only um, observed kind of afterwards because they were obscured by interstellar dust. And so we've detected their X-rays and radio waves since when we've got telescopes to be able to do that. But we couldn't see them when they went off at the time. So even though things are so bright, if there's something in the way, you can't always see it. So, okay, yes. Now you asked where the nearest ones are going to be. Now the one that people kind of talk about a lot is uh, called Eta Carina. And it is, well, it's actually a binary star system. It's a very massive binary star system. It's notable because it's gone through a couple of eruptions in recent history. Like in the 1840s, it, had this, it became the second brightest star in the sky for a while, for a few years. Uh, it kind of blew off a lot of material and then sort of calmed down a bit. Uh, There's actually two stars. Um, the biggest one is about 100 to 200 times the mass of the sun. So really, really, really big. And the other one is about 30 to 80 times the mass of the sun. So also quite large. Um, yeah, so it is probably going to go off at some point. No one really knows exactly when because it's quite a unique, unusual system. So we haven't really seen anything similar to that elsewhere in the universe. So we don't really know how it will go off or when. Um, but it too is about 7,500 light years away. So estimates of how bright it's going to be would only be able to say as bright as the planet Venus. So still not a big threat to us, I guess, in that sense. Now, do, do they think that the that, that those eruptions may maybe slow it down from having yeah from absolutely going supernova? absolutely so it's releasing a, a whole bunch of energy yeah and then that sort of calms it down for a while so it's not going to go supernova if it's yeah. just been doing that recently. There's even a chance it could fizzle out before it gets to um, yeah do anything dramatic or oh. or not even physically opposite of fizzle out it might um, form a black hole before it can actually blow up enough because it's just so, they're so massive. But, you know, we shall wait and see what happens. Um, closer than that, though, there are a couple of big stars. There are red supergiants. There is Antares, found in the constellation Scorpius. That's about 550 light years away. And then there is Betelgeuse in Orion, which is 724 light years away. Now, each of these ones, they're about 12 times the mass of the sun. And they're estimated to go off on the order of between 10,000 or 100,000 or more years. So... In the following millennia, those ones could go off. Uh, now, Betelgeuse in particular gets a lot of attention because it's a variable, variable star. So it fluctuates in size and brightness and people occasionally panic and think it's about to blow up and that it could you know, send radiation our way. Um, not just yet, it seems that's going to happen. But if it did, it probably still wouldn't cause a lot of damage to us because it's still a fair distance away. So... Um, supernova gives off a lot of radiation. It gives off neutrinos. It also gives off gamma rays and X-rays and ultraviolet light and this kind of stuff. 
and people have speculated this could cause damage on Earth. But we are protected by our our atmosphere and our uh, magnetic field from most of this radiation. So the atmosphere doesn't seem like much. You know, it is just air after all. Um, and air, you know, is not, say, good as, say, lead shielding for your radiation purposes. However, the thing to remember about the atmosphere is it's also quite thick. And there is enough of it to stop most of those things from getting to us. I mean, if the supernova was closer, like, say, it's been estimated within about, um, I think, 50 light years, it could be quite damaging. It could blow, blow away the ozone layer, and that could be bad. But um, there doesn't seem to be any um, notable suspects within the 50 light year range that we need to worry about. Um, there are some things called gamma ray bursts, though. They're interesting. <laughs> so a gamma ray burst is when you have a really, really big star and it's spinning really rapidly. And then when it collapses down, it can give off intense gamma rays along its axis. It, that's that it's spinning around. But they, again, have to be fairly close to you and they have to be pointed right at you to, um, to be a threat. So, again, Eta Carina is kind of the most likely candidate for doing that. But, you know, they're still not sure that it's, it's going to be doing that and it's not actually pointing at us. So, and it's still a fair distance away. So... So that, that's I think more, we're pretty safe from it. That's more like a like a gamma ray beam rather than just a diffusion of gamma yeah, rays yeah. going out in all directions. It's so like that, yeah. yeah, it sounds terrifying. Yeah, yeah, they're the a gamma ray beam. A yeah. gamma ray beam. <laughs> they're the brightest sources of light in the in the universe. Those gamma wow. ray bursts. We've seen them in distant galaxies, and some people have speculated they may have caused mass extinctions on Earth in the past, or that even that you know the reason we haven't contacted intelligent life is because you know you you evolve for so long and suddenly a gamma ray burst wipes you out, but there doesn't seem to be any candidates for gamma ray bursts nearby us, so we don't think it's going to happen to us. So I guess what I'm saying is that don't lose sleep about a supernova wiping out all life on Earth. But they're good things to look out for in in our own galaxy and in distant galaxies because they are they are the beacons of the universe. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, there's been a lot of talk about wild horses recently, particularly those ones located in Kosciuszko National Park. And the reason why everyone's talking about it is because there's been a bill passed uh, in New South Wales which has gone um, to great lengths to protect the wild horses in Kosciuszko. And the New South Wales government have gone against scientific expert findings. Hang on. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so the New South Wales government went against scientific expert findings in regard to conservation management in Kosciuszko, which is, of course, a alpine national park. Um, so if you just sit and think for a second, that means that the government um, is now protecting an invasive species um, within a national park, which is a pretty um, interesting and, and rare precedent. Well, it's now a precedent to set. Um, yeah, it kind of goes away from what most people would think national parks are meant to achieve. Indeed. And that is, that Kosciuszko is the biggest national park in the country too. Is that right? Yeah. By area, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and it has a lot of, uh, you know, very uh, rare and endangered species. Yeah, that's true. And one of, the, one of the things they were talking about, which I read recently, was there's a the most endangered freshwater fish in Australia is called the stocky galaxia and it oh. is found in the uh, in the Kosciuszko National Park and the horses with their with their hard hooves 
are basically chopping up the stream beds. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the stocky galaxias do their spawning and breeding and all that stuff. <clears throat> so they're, ha they're having a direct impact on that species by not allowing it to go through its natural breeding cycle. Totally. Um, so those are the sorts of reasons why scientific experts put together um, a Kosciuszko Wild Horse Management Plan back in, I think it was 2016, um, and it recognises the Brumbies as a key threatening species to the Kosciuszko ecosystem and it advocated for um, the management and culling of these horses up to um, 90%. Um, now this, like you said, Stu, this isn't just because, you know, they want to get rid of an invasive species, but there are some, um, there's a lot of, very real um, issues happening here and that's because all large hoofed animals, they have a huge impact on the environment. So, you know, whether they be deer, goats um, or and, or buffalo or other exotic ungulates in Australia, uh, the impacts um, are mostly um, or very well, well, very well reported um, impacts on the delicate crusts of the soils. So they compact the soils, like you say. Um, so then um, once you compact the soil, the water can't seep into the soil. Um, and then you get um, you get a lot of runoff and a lot of erosion that, that way. Um, but yeah, horses have an effect on the ecosystem in other ways. They need, like you say, um, they chop up the streams and that's because they need to drink daily. So they can't um, they can't go one day without a drink, so they have to go down to the stream every single day. And if you've got, and if you've got heaps of horses in an area, then they are accessing that stream like very regularly. Um, and then also because they don't chew their food as much as cattle or goats or sheep do, um, their seeds that they eat pass through them, um, which can be good if you've got, I guess, a native seed. Um, it's good to disperse that seed, but say you've got a weed and, um, and then that horse eats the weed with the seeds and then, it, you know, a couple of hours later, it's kilometers away from where it used to be. Um, it's dispersing those seeds into, into places that, you know, dispersing them far and wide, much further than where management, um, you know, regularly visits so. so yeah so invasive exotic species are getting into the park but i mean that's that's also because the horses don't just stay in the bounds of the park all the time too yeah. they're often coming in and out of the park yeah. and moving through the through the landscape in different parts of agricultural land and all sorts of other places yep, so as they're well. on private property as well as National yeah park. yeah absolutely so, and so, so they're bringing in weed seeds all the time just from eating whatever they can you know whatever they can find to graze on really Yep. Um, so all of this scientific advice uh, has been ignored and um, the New South Wales Coalition have been successful in putting through a bill called the Kosciuszko Wild Horse Heritage Bill, not only protecting these horses but also creating a community advisory panel uh, with no scientific experts appointed to advise the minister on how to manage the horse population um, in Kosciuszko. Now, in the lead up to the bill being passed, the big guns of science in Australia have been trying to throw their support and wait to influence the politicians. Uh, for example, the Australian Academy of Sciences wrote a letter to the New South Wales government uh, and in that letter they outlined that the Heritage Bill, the, um, the Kosciuszko Heritage Bill, places a priority on a single invasive species over many native species and ecosystems, some of which are found nowhere else in the world. 
Um, and then the International Union for the Conservation of Nature have also put forward a letter to the New South Wales government, which refers to the bill as creating a disturbing precedent at both national and global levels. And this is especially disturbing as Kosciuszko happens to be a UNESCO biosphere reserve. So it's an, it's a, um, it's an ecosystem of extremely um, high biodiversity and unique biodiversity. So is the... Um is the government responding to any of these this criticism? Like, are they defending their position, saying, "Oh, we do value this invasive species over the other ones," or are they basically, or are they, are they denying the science? The science. Um, I don't know whether they're denying the science, but it the, seems that to... they, from what I've seen, the ministers responsible have been saying things like that it's a that it's a balanced approach to solving the problem. Um, but, uh, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, kind of. And it seems to me that, you know, getting rid of an invasive species that's there's, you know, they're quite easy to track and find. It's not like it's, it's a, you know, microscopic organism. It's like a horse. A horse is quite large and you can track them and find them and remove them by whatever means. Um, but the balance is the horses get to survive and all of the endangered ecosystems that they're threatening don't get to survive. That doesn't seem to be very balanced to me. Yeah, they're saying the word balance, but the science is saying that they can't, those two things can't exist they're in the compatible. same environment. They're not compatible. Um, and um, along with balance, you know, this, there's this argument, they're citing these cultural reasons that hark back to seeing, you know, these majestic horses roaming through um, the snowy, like, you know, like a Banjo-Patterson poem. Um, now, you know, I would argue that there is cultural significance and value in having the rest of the ecosystem that, um, you know, and, and endangered species that you can't find anywhere else in the world um, still being in the park. Um, things like the corroboree frog, there are two species of corroboree frog, uh, that are those beautiful little yellow and uh, black frogs that are only found in alpine regions uh, that are, yeah, in, in a very precarious situation right now. Um, and now the other dodgy part of this bill is the there's an alleged conflict of interest. So the former Nationals member, Peter Cochran, uh, he runs a commercial venture offering Brumby spotting rides through the National Park um, and he's donated extensively to Deputy Premier John Barillaro and his campaign. Um, <clears throat> and John Barillaro is the one who introduced the bill to Parliament, which passed. So um, all involved have denied all accusations of conflict of interest and underhanded conduct. Um, but there you go. Anyway, since the bill's passed, Professor David Watson, who's a member of the New South Wales government's Threatened Species Scientific Committee, he's quit over this whole over this this whole thing. He's totally resigned. He's called the bill a willful disregard for science that diminishes our future, um, and I tend to agree with him. Um, and if you feel the same, I would recommend writing to your local state member.
we have spoken on the show before and many people have probably heard of one of the most famous psychological experiments of the late 20th century the marshmallow test was that performed by the mathematician pascal no no a bit yes, later than that i have heard of the marshmallow test is it when uh you give kids the opportunity to eat one marshmallow now or wait five minutes and have two marshmallows Pretty much. Basically, that's what it is. So the original marshmallow test was undertaken in the 60s and the participants followed for the next 20 years or so to see how they performed in later life. Oh, and right. this is okay. where the conclusions were where people thought they were very significant. Mm, those who had more marshmallows had quite a rocky road in their lives. No? <laughs> that, was, that was better. Yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep, keep trying. We'll, okay. we'll come back to that. Um, so Walter Mischel was a professor of psychology at Stanford University in the United States, and he set out to test whether a child's willpower had any influence on their success as an adult. Seems like a pretty simple question. So he set out first to test the willpower of children. He selected 90 kids from a convenient location and put them to the test. The test itself was to put a marshmallow in front of the child and promise them another marshmallow if they didn't eat that first marshmallow for 15 minutes. Ooh, then, that's a long time. Then, yeah, that is a long time to be looking at a marshmallow. Because yeah. then they'd leave the child alone with their thoughts and, oh. and the marshmallow and just sort of watch them through it, <laughs> watch them through a secret window to see what they're doing. Oh, and they would be so cruel. They would measure how long the kids would hold out. So some of them did hold out and some of them waited. And the longer they waited, the sort of higher the score they got. So the idea was that children with more willpower would be able to wait and be rewarded for their patience by getting double the treats they would have otherwise received. And this was supposed to you know, reflect a certain attitude that they had that they could carry on and, you know, delay their gratification and be able to, you know, study for no reward for a longer time and things like that. Um, so it was proposed by the authors that this willpower had a predictive influence over the success of the children involved, and they claimed to show this in follow-ups. Now, because they started in the late 60s, their results were not published until the 1990s because they obviously had to wait for these kids to grow up and see how successful they were so they could judge them accordingly. Um, so other researchers reading this finding in the 90s disagreed, but with such a long-term experiment um, following the participants into adulthood, it took some time to replicate. Well, that replication has been published Oh, excellent. Oh, wow. So the biggest problem Tyler Watts, Greg Duncan, and Hoanan Kwan had with the study was that only 90 children were included, and they all came from a childcare facility on the Stanford University campus. Right, okay. So basically these were kids of employees and students at Stanford University, which is so a it's very... not exactly a... a section of it's just one section of society it's basically not it's not it's not random it's not a representative sample of children or of economic and social backgrounds obviously all yeah. of those things could influence the success of a person in later life so they repeated the study with a broader base of children over 900 children um and they found that the clear correlation showed in the original experiment between delayed gratification and success did not hold up. 
So having the willpower to refuse that marshmallow is not the reason that you're successful as an adult. So correcting the study for ethnicity, income, parental education levels, and a whole bunch of other factors, including interviewing the children in their homes and observing the homes they lived in, the new research found that these things influence the ability to delay gratification themselves. So the tendency to be able to delay gratification has a lot more to do with who your parents are, how much they earn and where you live than some sort of innate quality that is predicting your future success. Can I just comment on the fact that they're doing an experiment on delayed gratification that takes them decades to perform? <laughs> it is it is somewhat ironic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the children who are able to wait for the reward of the second marshmallow are already... <laughs> are already in social and economic conditions that predispose them to success. The new study published in the journal Psychological Science shows that the influence of the early childhood environment has a much greater effect on both the ability of the child to resist temptation as well as their later life success. So it may be a blow for the concept of willpower itself because if you think about decision-making... A decision like eating or not eating a marshmallow are shaped by our understanding of the consequences of eating or not eating a marshmallow, um, which is informed by your past experience. So it makes a lot of sense that experience plays a part in making those kind of decisions. If you've been promised a second marshmallow before and the marshmallow doesn't appear, you're more likely to eat the first marshmallow because you think, well... You might even take this one away. I'm never, you know, I'm not sure what you're going to do with this marshmallow delivery system you're promising. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting idea that that the, the the whole concept of willpower might not be something you can measure because really you're just making a decision based on what you think is going to happen, and that's based on what's already happened to you before. Um, and it might even be potentially a bigger blow to the tendency for self-attribution that some people have for their success because it seems that childhood circumstances contribute far more to people's success than any kind of willpower that they might have of themselves. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science! science.